Welcome to Diagram Dialogues, a podcast that explores the forces transforming healthcare across Asia Pacific and the ways in which diagnostics is shaping this future. These episodes will feature leading voices, from innovators and changemakers to patient advocates who are dreaming of a better tomorrow and making it a reality. Hear how they are innovating diagnostics, shaping healthcare, and changing lives. Welcome back to another episode of Diagram Dialogues. I'm your host Jonathan Chan, and this week we're sharing part of a conversation between Rohit Sagal from the Voices Project and Dr. Ratna Devi, CEO of Dakshama Health, as they discuss the current state and the future of patient engagement in Asia with a focus on India. Before founding Dakshama Health, Dr. Devi worked as a government doctor in various roles in civil society. The trajectory of her career changed, however. After seeing so many patient groups at a UN meeting on non-communicable diseases, seeing how patients are often left out of the decision-making process in India's healthcare system, through her organization, she's been working to empower patients so that they can make their own decisions and seek healthcare that is right for them. We hope you find this discussion insightful, and if you want to hear their full conversation, please visit thevoicesprojectasia.org. Today we have with us Dr. Ratna Devi. Uh, she is the chief executive officer of Dakshama Health, a non-profit organization based in India, which aims to empower patients and caregivers with the right knowledge, tools, and forums to seek and access healthcare options that can help suit their needs and, through their voices, bring about a positive change in the healthcare environment. Well, Dr. Devi, what we're going to be discussing is the importance and the current state and the future of patient engagement within your experience and the purview of Asia. It'll be really great to hear more about the work that you're doing and particularly your background, which is absolutely exciting. Thank you, Rohit, and a good, very good morning to all our listeners who are tuned in today to this episode. Um, I'm Dr. Ratna, as I have been introduced earlier. I have a specialization in public health, uh, over 30 years of uh, work experience. I started my career as a government uh, you know, doctor working in a public health space. And that was absolutely brilliant because it taught me the problems and the uh, struggles that a common man faces while try, uh, trying to access the healthcare system. I moved on to work in civil society in various roles, and that again was a deep learning, uh, you know, exercise for me because I worked across maternal and child health, HIV, Hep C, non-communicable diseases, rare diseases, and it gave me the exposure that no one institution can give you. And armed with this knowledge and experience, um, somewhere in 2011, I was very fortunate to have been invited to a high-level meeting of the UN on non-communicable diseases. And when I saw patients' uh, groups there in civil society talking about advocacy, I came back charged with energy. And I said, I need to do something in India. In those days, uh, a decade back, non-communicable diseases were just beginning to take some focus in healthcare systems. It was all communicable and maternal and child health before that. I knew that, uh, you know, people with diabetes, people with hypertension were increasing manifold because of lifestyle changes. However, the healthcare system was not really ready to meet the new expectations of patients. So I searched around and couldn't find anything in the context of my country. And that motivated me to start my own organization in 2012. 2012 was also a turning point because I was invited to a global patient congress that was organized by the International Alliance of Patient Organizations. And that was truly a very stimulating experience because I saw 
hundreds and hundreds of patient groups and patient advocates who knew exactly what they wanted and who to talk to about what they wanted and how to get it done. Something I felt was very deeply missing in the context of my country. So when I started this organization, my aim was to empower patients with the right knowledge so that they are able to seek healthcare that is most appropriate for them and to be able to do that dialogue with policymakers and with their care providers to be able to express what they wanted and whether the healthcare system was actually functioning for them in the way they wanted it to. We know that in the context of our region, um, Asia Pacific, it's a very paternalistic healthcare system where healthcare providers are treated with a lot of reverence and patients don't really question decisions. And I wanted these people, uh, the patients, to really understand and own their condition. And through that ownership, be able to decipher whether the medications that were being provided to them are really working instead of suffering in silence or going from one doctor to another and not getting the treatments that they deserve. Dr. Devi, with these factors, as you've just explained, the the nuances of uh, countries like India in particular, I guess the big question, right? Uh, What's impacting patient and community engagement? I think we can talk the whole day about the issues facing uh, community engagement or patient engagement. But let me just focus on maybe three or four top factors, if I can say that. One, of course, is the health-seeking behavior and the health literacy. Considering that we are the low- and middle-income countries or low-income countries where priority is food on the table and trying to get a job that pays you for that food, healthcare is always pushed towards the backbench. It's not a priority unless you are in severe pain or a crisis which forces you to seek healthcare. Uh, so given this context of where healthcare is not a priority, uh, preventive care doesn't really uh, figure on the list of people's minds, you know, on things to do today. And that is a vicious cycle because you reach a point where you have to manage your healthcare condition because you can't stay at home any longer. So you visit a hospital and even if you do visit a hospital that has all the facilities and the ability to treat your condition, you've reached them at a point where they probably can't help you much and the damage is already done. And therefore, you suffer the after effects of the condition, uh, maybe lifelong disability or inability to earn because you can't put in your work hours. And and then you cannot pay for that healthcare because healthcare is out of pocket in most cases. And uh, the public health infrastructure is not strong enough to meet the needs of the population here. Huge population density, which means long waiting times. And uh, that means that there is loss of wages. So people try to put off a doctor's visit to as long as possible until it is no longer bearable or it becomes an emergency, as I said before. So this is a cultural, geographic, economic context of this region. We are the largest populated region of the world. We all know India has a huge population. There are other countries uh, that are equally populated in this region. The health infrastructure is not the best. So if you see the doctor to uh, the population ratio or the nurse to population or pharmacist to population ratio, then we have the fewest of doctors. We have a multiple of uh, medicine systems. Uh, So there is the traditional medicine systems competing with the modern medicine systems. And a lot of myths and misconceptions around modern medicine systems um, which drive patients to, you know, seek the traditional one before they actually go to the modern one. So if you combine all this with the lack of health-seeking behavior and health literacy, it is a slide uh, where people become sicker and sicker and are not able to afford the healthcare that they deserve. 
there are a lot of people who can afford healthcare. However, even for them, health is not a priority. Our traditional systems did teach us a little bit of prevention. However, the more educated younger generation, quote unquote, treats them that just as rituals. So they do not follow any of those measures and the changing lifestyles have added to the walls. So all these fast foods, lack of exercise, air pollution, etc. is making the young, younger generation sicker as well. But because they do not invest enough into preventative healthcare, you see more younger people having heart attacks or, or younger people having hypertension because you don't think that a sick person, uh, you know, could be that young. So the suspicion in the care provider's mind when this person re- reports sick is not to measure hypertension. So we do not have systems where routine checks eliminate these kind of things at the first instance. So there has to be a huge mindset change within the healthcare providers, within the younger generations, within the populations per se, to be able to manage healthcare in a way that makes them less sick and is able to give them the control of their health. The other more important part of it is patient engagement is not seen as important or as part of the healthcare system. If you see the engagement within policymakers, patients do not have a seat at the table. So they are not generally asked to come and participate in discussions when you are creating, say, treatment protocols or uh, you are putting out guidelines on how to manage uh, a particular disease. Similarly, um, as I mentioned earlier, Healthcare providers do not uh, have a dialogue. They just have a monologue. They ask the patient what is wrong with them. They uh, write a series of tests. They then come to a diagnosis and then they advise the patient that this is the chart that they have to follow. There is no follow-up after that. Very few doctors actually have regular follow-up. And again, the health systems do not allow the doctors to do a regular follow-up because we have paper-based prescriptions. We do not have electronic health records. We are not using technology to its advantage to send, say, SMS alerts uh, or other means of following up with patients. So usually follow-up is left to, um, you know, maybe the nurses or other staff within the hospital. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And because there is no incentivization to the follow-up, Even if you do receive a message saying, did you check your blood pressure after three months or did you do a refill of your diabetes medicine after three months, people generally ignore those alerts. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Having said that, there is a positive outcome that is happening in terms of patients getting more and more engaged, more and more patient groups forming and talking about their healthcare, discussing amongst themselves as to what is working for them and what is not working for them. And then in a positive way, trying to engage with their healthcare providers as well with with policymakers in questioning why certain systems are not available or why certain diagnostics are not available within the context of their country or even innovative medicines not being available and driving that policy change to bring in that within the access of the common man. Is there possibly also the need to look at the linking up of a more comprehensive, supportive care system that can, in a way, encourage better or a bit more of an attuned engagement factors where there might be none from a patient perspective. I certainly do agree that we should have a more integrated approach. Uh, You know, in discussions after discussions, we realize how fragmented our healthcare system is and how, you know, vertical or silo-based system uh, we work in. 
just to give you a perspective, when I was working with uh, patients with Parkinson's, uh, we were trying to uh, work with neurologists to be able to, um, you know, uh, get into India um, a surgical procedure that was unavailable to most people because it was too expensive. And we were trying to advocate for inclusion into insurance, both public and private sector. And even though I'm a qualified medical professional, I realized that not all neurologists treat Parkinson's, especially for the surgical part of it, and that they have specialities within the neurologists themselves. So there is a movement disorder specialist, and there is an epilepsy specialist, and then you have a strokeologist, and uh, you have the general neurologist, and this is mind-boggling. First of all, reaching a neurologist is difficult because for a population like India, you hardly have any neurologists, maybe 3,000 or so for the 1.3 billion. So if you are lucky enough to reach a neurologist, how on earth are you supposed to know which neurologist is the one who, who can treat you for the condition that you have? So there is a huge lack of knowledge. Uh, and also, I think this super specialization is you know, very, very detrimental from the patient perspective. But I think uh, the hospital should be able to deal with which patient should uh, go to which specialist, not the patient trying to search for the specialist on his or her own, uh, you know, uh, means. And for that to happen, we need to have integrated healthcare systems. However, our healthcare systems are very complicated. So you have standalone hospitals with one speciality. You have multi-speciality hospitals. Uh, you have these big universities with medical colleges where you get everything under the sun. And not all are within the reach of every person. And for critical, uh, you know, journeys, especially things like stroke, heart attack, um, you know, for cancer, etc. Usually they are placed in big metropolitan cities. And the patient meanders through a lot of different journeys before they reach the right place and get the right diagnosis and the treatment. And this is more uh, painful than actually the diagnosis and the treatment. Once you have a diagnosis, you sort of settle down and you know this is the path forward. But the journey to that diagnosis is so difficult that sometimes the delay is so critical and may cost the life of the person. So I think integrated healthcare systems with robust referral pathways is extremely important. We do a lot of talking about primary healthcare becoming more robust and driving universal health coverage, but that is really lacking in most countries. Even in the most developed countries, you see that you know there are bits and pieces where things are not really straightforward. And in countries like India, where, you know, you have huge population issues and, of course, uh, the investment in healthcare is not as great, it is even more difficult. One of my work is to see that uh, access to innovative diagnostics and uh, innovative medicines, it becomes easier for patients. Yeah. And our experience has been that uh, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of, you know, Pharmaceuticals or the Department of Pharmaceuticals do not speak with each other. Nutrition is an integral part of any cure. If you do not have the right food uh, or you do not have enough food, then any amount of medicine is not going to cure you. And I think it is extremely important that more focus is there on how to integrate the healthcare system, not only at the delivery level, which is the hospitals and the healthcare providers, but also in the design and the policy level. Unless you're thinking of the design 
it's very hard to, you know, have the healthcare system that's in bits and pieces and then tell people, look here, you all need to work together. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. So I think the design or the policy part of it should focus more on integration. And once that happens, the patients can bring in their perspectives on where things are working well. And uh, it's an easy uh, journey for them and where things are not working that well and give that feedback so that those uh, gaps can then be covered and things can be worked out better. That's that's such an interesting thought there because if you don't have the if you don't have integration put together, it's not going to happen. But if you don't value the benefits that the integration can provide, then why would anyone want to invest in it in the first place? It's almost like a chicken and the egg story. If fundamentally patients and their caregivers are like would prefer to just not know the risk factors simply because. They're not so cued in on the sort of screening availabilities, the the ease of screening, the speed of screening, the accuracy. The do, do you think that in a way that's almost like the make or break? You know, people just aren't looking at the value of what diagnostic or preventative medicine could be. Being healthy means that you are constantly checking. It's like uh, taking your car after you buy it for your annual checks. And you you know the first three ones come free and then you uh, after every 10,000 kilometers, you have to pay for it. But most people ignore that as well. But there are many these days uh, who have realized that if you do that, then probably your costs of maintenance later come down. A similar analogy, uh, analogy can be applied to human beings as well. You know, if, if you're constantly checking and you know that after 35, you should be checking for diabetes and hypertension. After 40, for women, you should have a pap smear and a breast exam. Everybody knows this. At least most educated people know it. But then uh, I think the alarm in their um, mind or brains doesn't go off till something happens to them. And they don't realize that if they had done a little bit of investigation every year, if they are unfortunate enough to have uh, some kind of disease manifestation, they would have probably caught it early enough before it makes them sick. You can be a diabetic and never be sick. You just take medicines regularly and live a normal life. Similar is the case for hypertension. However, most people do not realize the value of regular checkups and diagnostics to be able to prevent a catastrophic event. And I think that is where public awareness is very, very important. Huge awareness programs on why it is important to prevent anything from happening rather than treat something that's already happened uh, is extremely important. And I think in a way, this is because healthcare has always been driven by the curative part of it and not the preventative part of it. And the curative part of it is um, because, you know, the, the patients didn't have a voice. It's the doctors who always spoke about what to do once you are sick. Most doctors don't tell you what to do not to fall sick. That a dialogue has been changing now because of a lot of very passionate doctors, especially in cardiovascular and other areas, who feel really bad when they are not able to help patients. So they have become public health advocates. So we need to have a communication system or a communication strategy that tells people what to do to be able to prevent uh, you know, sicknesses. And uh, in many of the developed countries, this is driven through employers where you know, health insurance is provided. It's mandatory to provide health insurance through employers. And those insurances are incentivized if you do not fall sick or, you know, you have to have a copay if you fall sick. Whichever way, it tells you that, you know, I have to pay from my pocket if I don't care, take care of my health. And that drives good behavior. I think that is extremely necessary now, considering that 
the health systems will never be able to catch up with the demand that is there. More and more people are falling sick, not necessarily because of their own free will, because, you know, the changes in environment, all the carcinogens in the air, water pollution, everything, new diseases, new and emerging viruses, etc., will make you sick one day. So how can people maintain their health so that something that can be prevented will be prevented? Something that cannot be prevented is detected early enough so that you're able to manage it well. And the outcome of all of this is that you have a fairly good quality of life so that you're not dependent on anyone. A lot's been spoken about the reality that uh, the term financial toxicity has been used a lot more in the last uh, few years than it ever has before, usually around areas of cancer and you know management of cancer and the lack of sometimes cohesive policies that says, right, we've got the diagnostic bit done, we've got the treatment bit done, but the rest of it, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to live your life? How are you going to manage your job, your, you know, caregivers, all that is basically left in the middle. Any any thoughts around the aspect of financial toxicity? You know, healthcare is expensive. There are no two opinions about that. Uh, however, I think one can manage the expenses of the healthcare if they plan well enough. So health insurance is a must. Most people think, you know, you pay year after year without falling sick and that's a waste. It's never a waste. And this is what I tell all my patient groups. Invest in an insurance policy that is adequate for you. Because if you have an insurance policy that will not see you through a healthcare uh, catastrophe, there's no point in investing in it. Do not uh, discontinue, you know, do it every year, year after year. In fact, I would say that as soon as a child is born, there should be an insurance policy in his or her name, which then supports that person when the person is 60 or 70 or whenever they fall sick. Because most healthcare expenses happen towards the later part of your life. And with longevity increasing, that's when you end up paying all your uh, savings that you had a whole lifetime to accumulate. So I think health insurance is extremely important. And when you have an adequate health insurance, along with preventative measures that, you know, you do year after year to see that either you're not falling ill or if you're falling ill, it's detected early enough to be able to manage it well. The financial toxicity can be managed very well. Right now, the financial toxicity is an outcome of low health literacy, low health seeking behavior, no investment in healthcare. And this uh, general perception of people that the government has to pay for everything. Having said that, insurances have not been very good in terms of the offerings that they have to patients. And um, there is a lot of distrust and mistrust in the insurance. So I think the insurance sector has a lot to do in terms of winning the trust of the people that they are selling their products to. Make those products more comprehensive so that the policy that you take has less of diseases that are not covered than diseases that are covered. And the language is simpler for people to understand. Even for people who understand insurance a little bit, it is very hard to, uh, to decipher a policy and understand you know, what those exclusions are and what the inclusions are because they are written in a language that is almost impossible to read. Dr. Devi, from this perspective you've provided around the realizations of systemic changes, the necessity for inclusion of vital stakeholders, the coming together almost, the interoperability, if one can say, of achieving a positive outcome across patients, caregivers, health services, any recommendations or perhaps experiences that you may have in terms of these priorities and perspectives and, and what could allow for uh, uh, stakeholders to adopt a more stimulating patient engagement? 
I think evidence-based medicine has now become a norm um, and more and more governments as well as healthcare providers and professional associations have started to realize that you might be giving them the best medicines and the best diagnostics, but if the patient is not happy with the outcome, you're not going to achieve much. Uh, because uh, quality of life is important. It's not just the clinical outcomes that you measure. And a very um, simple example is uh, if you have given a medicine to manage your hypertension and the clinical outcome is that you are within the baseline parameters, but you have a splitting headache that does not allow you to work in your office, it's of no use to the patient because, uh, yes, clinically he is fit and fine, but uh, physically he is not happy, he is not able to manage his life. So evidence-based medicine where patient-reported outcomes and uh, patient experiences are important important is gathering a lot of momentum. It started with the pharmaceutical industry as part of clinical trials, but now it is coming more and more into treatment protocols as well. And once this becomes the norm, I think more and more people and stakeholders will start coming together to see what really matters to patients and start working around building a healthcare system that provides the best experience. I think you mentioned something quite interesting earlier in terms of the policymakers who matter and perhaps the lack of dialogue between key uh, ministries and key, you know, sort of uh, interlocutors that should be there, the Ministry of Health, the pharmaceuticals, etc. What should our policymakers be really looking at? If I had to put it in a simple statement, it is the eyes will not see what the mind does not know. Uh, so most of our policymakers are not trained to understand what patient engagement means or what patient empowerment means. And usually they change when they see the patients and patient groups and listen to them and listen to their journeys. You know, real life experiences, whether in terms of videos or blogs and all, can be very, very you know uh, powerful in terms of changing the mindset and the thought process of policymakers. And as patient groups, we have seen that it works wonders, especially when you get a real patient in the room talking about their journey through the healthcare system. So I think one suggestion would be that as part of their formal training, they should be exposed to patient groups and patient uh, experiences. You know, just get a patient in the room and listen to them before they sign on any policy document or uh, listen to a patient group. And uh, some of those misconceptions that policymakers had, especially in the context of developing countries, is that patient groups are activists and that they are demanding everything for free. That is no longer true. Uh, many patient groups are now saying, yes, we can pay, but we need the quality that we deserve. So once that has changed, once once the ask has changed from the patient groups, I think it's time that everybody sat together and some kind of exposure to what patient advocacy means or a formal training on what patient advocacy means would work wonders. In looking at all of these uh, perspectives and challenges and opportunities, what would then sort of be the recommendations or outcomes that you might see in increasing interest or access to that realization of earlier recognition, the earlier detection, the earlier diagnostics? If you want populations to be healthier, um, you have to provide them with the right information. Most people struggle to find the right information. So maybe something that is authentic 
like a CDC, for example, you know, if you went to a CDC center, you would never question any of the information there. So something that is authentic and people can trust in and are able to search for in their local languages, because usually information is available in English and that not, that is not accessible to many, uh, you know, people in, in this part of the world because of the varied languages. So access to information, I think, is very important. Access to, of course, the early diagnostics, but then more importantly, where these diagnostics and hospitals are available. That is, again, there is a huge information in, as asymmetry in, I need this, but where do I get it? Even if I stay in a metro, uh, it is all not always true that the nearest hospital has all the facilities. So some kind of a search mechanism or a, or a directory where if I experience a heart attack at 3 a.m. at night, where do I go? Which is the nearest hospital? Is there a doctor available there? How can I get this information? And coming to this, maybe, you know, use technology to advantage uh, to make this kind of information available. And then a massive awareness campaign on why preventative health is important that possibly can be supplemented with some kind of in incentivization. So if you stay healthy, you, you are doing your checkups every year, uh, and you don't report sick to a hospital, then maybe get a higher salary or, um, you know, pay less premium for your insurance or you get a education waiver for your children, some kind of incentivization so that people get uh, a positive vibe out of all of this. Uh, if we can do some some of these things, I think we have a positive future. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more about Roche Diagnostics and Diagram Dialogues, please visit rochediagram.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.